Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek Interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I am the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering of the platform is a public speaking course called Teach the Geek to Speak. To learn more about it, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that is teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Jennifer Braganza, and she's done quite a bit. Process improvement, product design, project management, I'm really interested to learn more about her speaking exploits, of course, since that's kind of what we talk about here. And she's taught at universities, and she's done training and and coaching outside of that, too. So I'm interested to learn more about that. Welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews, Jennifer. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Wonderful. So from the bit of research I did on you, I saw that you got your undergraduate degree in chemical engineering. What was the motivation to get that particular degree? So, um, kind of really simple story. I had to pick a major and my mother was a chemical engineer. So I picked what she did because it looked like she had a good job. <laughs> you know, that was it. I, that's it. Uh, you know, for, for the longest while, I used to lie about why I picked engineering and it wasn't really much of a choice at all. So when I finished high school, you know, my father said, you know, what did you want to, what I wanted to do? And I didn't really have any idea. And he said, do engineering. So I did. And that's how I ended up in engineering. You know, so many people that, that studied engineering, they had way more interesting stories. You know, they, they did, maybe they did robotics in high school. They played with Legos when they were kids. I didn't do any of that. I just, I just did what my father said I should do. Yeah, my mom gave us flexibility. I mean, that my parents were like, you could study one of these like four things. It was a multiple choice selection kind of thing. But um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> engineering was one of the multiple choice, um, and I was good at math and science. Uh, funny enough, the other major I really wanted to pursue was journalism. Um, you know, all things equal, I ended up getting a chemical engineering degree, but I also got an industrial and operations engineering degree at Michigan. And I'd say I definitely use that IOE um, more than the chemi, um, which is good because I enjoyed the IOE degree a lot more than getting the chemical. <laughs> so. so was the idea to further your education and get a master's degree something that you had always planned or was that something perhaps your, your parents had suggested as well? My parents actually um, didn't care whether we got master's or not. I ended up getting my first master's because at the time um, I was debating a career shift. So since I was, a, I'd say, a junior in college, I kind of knew I had a teaching bug. I wanted to teach. And at the time, um, I was fairly young in my career. I think I was in my early 20s when I started my first master. I'd maybe been out of school for a couple years. And I did some research and there's quite a pay difference between somebody who teaches with an undergrad and somebody who teaches with the masters. And honestly, that's why I got my master's in engineering. It had nothing to do with anything else. It was, I was like, well, if I take this route and go teach, I want to have my master's. So I come in at a higher pay grade. Oh, okay. So teach, I didn't even realize that, well, teaching with a, a master's degree was a thing. I, Whenever I thought of teaching, I always thought of, you know, people with PhDs, but 
I guess, teaching with a master's? Did you teach in, in universities or colleges? Um, so the master's at the time was because I thought I was going to teach K through 12. And I will say that, you know, if God has a plan because things work out the way that they are supposed to. So I got that master's, but I ended up staying with my company. I didn't change roles into this like local high school teaching gig that I thought it might do. I ended up staying the engineering path. Um, they located me to Germany for a couple of years. And while I was in Germany, um, I'd been there for two and a half years and I decided, okay, it's time for me to come back to the US. And I started looking for jobs back in the United States. And I saw this job at UNC Charlotte. And it was teaching in their freshman engineering program, running um, an academic success program, working with student organizations, like all of the things I loved when I was a student. And so I applied for it. Well, lo and behold, it required a master's degree. So, you know, things work out the way they're supposed to. I ended up getting that master's degree kind of on a fluke, but because I had it, I was able to really, you know, take on that role that was perfect. I remember reading that job description for that role at UNC Charlotte and thinking, this job was written for me. It was so perfect. It was everything I wanted to do. Oh, nice. So I, I noticed that you got another master's though. What was the, the motivation to get in that second one? So um, honestly, I was on a path to get a PhD. I wanted to, at that point in my life, I started a PhD program and I wanted to get my PhD so that I could become tenure track at the university and kind of, you know, live that life of an academic. Um, and while I was in the middle of the PhD program, I, I had finished the coursework. I was getting ready to start the thesis. Um, I made a shift to work back, to come back to corporate America. And um, I was really pursuing that degree. So I was pursuing a PhD in industrial and systems engineering because I wanted to stay in the College of Engineering and my passion, what I would have studied research were around things like innovation, um, how ideas go from an idea to being a commercial product and how we can help faculty commercialize their ideas, study um, engineering entrepreneurship. Like I really wanted to focus on kind of that piece of it. And I didn't have a lot of options to get my PhD in industrial and or systems engineering. There was really only one place I could get it in North Carolina. And um, the, in reality, there were no faculty there who were studying what I was excited about, and it ended up just not being a good match. I was working full-time, uh, trying to be a full-time PhD student. I didn't have the right faculty support, and I realized I was jumping through a lot of hoops for something that I wasn't sure I wanted anymore. Like, I still want a PhD, but I realized I really want the PhD in the stuff I'm interested in. I don't want to get it in industrial engineering. Um, and so I ended up instead completing at, at a master's degree. So I finished the coursework. So, you know, they, they give you the master's and you can leave the program. So that's what happened there. Well, I didn't even realize that it was possible to be in a PhD program and still work. That, that, that's, a, that's a lot of work. It was tough. Um, and I think that was part of the issue too. I mean, I was in my 30s, if I remember correctly. And uh, you've got, a, it's a completely different lifestyle. Like I was coming to campus one day a week and trying to do as much as I could. 
Um, I didn't have a strong support system there. Uh, the vast majority of the other students there were, honestly, they were either international students, uh, many of them, you know, super bright, super smart. And um, while I certainly don't think that I wasn't smart enough to get the degree, just looking at everything that was on my plate, it was too much. And I was feeling very, very um, stretched. And it just, it was the thing that fell out. Um, I wasn't excited about it. It wasn't going very well. Um, so it just made sense to kind of bail on that. And I still believe I will go get my PhD one day, but it will be in something that I am passionate about and excited about. Um, and I'm gonna try and stay in a area where there's faculty who are studying or uh, doing research in something that I'm passionate about. I, I learned my lesson on that one. For sure. What differences have did you find working in the university teaching environment and then working again, more in, in corporate America? You know, it's politics everywhere. I mean, realistically, it's just different politics and different people have the power. Um, in a university, the tenured faculty have the power. They, uh, they are like an immovable object. <laughs> when they want to be. Um, but it's the same skills that you use in corporate America. Um, it's influence, it's understanding what they want, understanding how you can find something that gives both sides what they want. I mean, all of that was the same. Um, I will say, you know, I, I, I was surrounded by some of the most brilliant minds. And I can still remember there was a, a gentleman named Dr. Patterson. And he, um, at one point, had led one of our national labs. And I mean, this man was just, and it still is, amazingly brilliant um, and super nice, the nicest man. Like, you would walk, I, I would talk to students because this would happen to them too, but you would walk into his office and ask him a question. And all of a sudden, he would be like on his whiteboard pouring out like, nuclear physics formulas or something and you had no idea what he was talking about but he was excited and he was going um and it was just it was fantastic to be surrounded by people that were that smart and that knowledgeable about their topic and one of the things i would tell students i was like you're never going to experience this ever again in your entire life being surrounded by people who wrote the book on all of these topics go go absorb, like go to the French department or the history department or religious studies and just be, walk into their office and be like, can I buy you a coffee? Because these are the most brilliant minds. Like in, in every university in this country, we've got these brilliant minds and, and they're so passionate about the creation of knowledge, most of them. And that is why they went into academia. Um, they're, they're passionate about the creation. Some of them are passionate about the dispersion of it. You know, they write journal articles, they teach. Um, but the reality is there, we no longer learn in the same way that our education systems were designed to support. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of us miss out on the opportunity from, from being able to kind of sit at the feet of these amazing intellectuals and just learn from them. And we don't realize how blessed we are to have that opportunity. So I would say, that's something that was amazing to me. Um, and I think it's also a lesson for me as an engineer, not just for me, but for many of us who are engineers. Because a lot of times we walk into rooms with a cross-functional team and um, we can think at a different level and we think in a different way than they do. 
And when you're surrounded by all of these brilliant minds, you learn what it's like to be the other person in that room who's like, I have no idea what you're talking about because I, I couldn't follow so many of these faculty just because what they were talking about was like shh, over my head. Now that's, that's not to say that I couldn't have sat down and asked more questions and, and gotten an understanding. I absolutely could have. It was a great experience to walk into rooms and know you were definitely not the smartest person in the room. I think everyone needs that experience. It teaches humility. Um, and we all need that humility because a lot of my corporate experience was walking into the room and feeling like I was really smart. And so I think that was a really good experience for me because it gave me humility and I, I needed it. <laughs> so, um, but other than that, I mean, working at a university is, is very similar to working at any big organization. Um, they have organizational politics and you have to learn how to navigate the organization, who the power players are, it's, it's all the same stuff. Uh, you'd probably be surprised at who actually holds the power in there because it's not like it is in corporate America where hierarchy matters. Uh, the dean does not have the power to tell faculty what to do. Um, he, he really, you know, that part's interesting because it's a very different structure than what we experience in corporate America. Um, faculty can argue with the dean as much as they want and they're not at risk of being fired unless you know they're being completely disrespectful or something else but as long as they're professional those rules of engagement that we experience in corporate america are, are completely different hmm. what, what did you teach when you were at university i taught design uh primarily i taught um the design process a little bit on the innovation um, and then as I continued, I established a global engineering program. So I taught design from a global perspective. Um, that was global perspectives on design. I taught a systems design and deployment course, which was really like Six Sigma. So it was all around that design process improvement type stuff that I do for a living. So eventually you stopped doing that. You went back to corporate America. What was the motivation to, to leave? academia so um when you i think at different stages where you're looking for different and there's this great model um that was published by harvard business review um in an article called success at last and they have the four elements of success and their um joy significance legacy and achievement and i taught that as part of a leadership academy program that I was part of. And so I was very familiar with this model and I very quickly realized like I could track why I had left my first job to join the university. And as I was doing some reflection around that model, I realized I was missing the achievement. So there's nothing like working with young people to give you a sense of significance, like what you do matters, legacy, what you do is gonna last a long time after you're gone. But it was, like Groundhog Day is, you know, every semester a new group of students you did the same thing. And I wasn't really growing and challenging myself. And I was in my mid-20s at the time. So I was still fairly early in my career. So um, it was just time for time for that challenge button to get pushed. And so I I did, I did want to come back to court. One of the things I have a luxury of being able to just be very selective about who I was willing to work with. With or for when I came back corporate. So I actually did a little research, made a list of the 
companies I was willing for, um, and really strategically built my network to identify opportunities in those companies. And I changed my job um, during that financial crisis time, right? So I changed um, roles in about 20, I think it was 2011. So it wasn't a great time to be thinking about changing roles, um, but it was it was just the right time for me. Okay. You don't really come across too many people that have both that academic and, and industrial experience. But based on the model that you just were talking about, is that being fulfilled in what you're doing now? It is. Um, I have, uh, you know, I'm a coach, and so I'm always like even coaching myself. And so when I look at that model, what I have learned is that your career doesn't have to be the way that you feel all for you can fill them in different ways. And so I am still heavily involved at UNC Charlotte to give me that significance and legacy. I still am a, I sit on a board for them. I volunteer with a leadership program with them. Um, so I'm still heavily involved at the, at the college and at the university. I also um, do a lot of animal welfare. Um, so I work in dog rescue. I do a lot of other things and I'm always paying attention to where I am in that, um, what they call the kaleidoscope bottle. So I wanna make sure I have that sense of balance. Am I pursuing things that just give me joy? Um, and so I take up a, a new hobby. This summer I took up um, doodling and info doodling because I, I think it's a cool skill and it's probably what I'm actually gonna be able to incorporate into my career um, or my, my work skills. You know, I, I'm always looking for how I can balance that out so that I constantly am reinventing what success looks for, like for me. And that's, that's a model that just works for me in terms of that reflection. And so, yes, right now, I, I absolutely am getting that sense. I've got that sense of balance because with my career and the things that I've got in my personal life, I feel fairly well-rounded um, in that model. Well, it's probably the smart answer in the, in the event that your employer is watching this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, you know, one of the things that I um, am super passionate about is having people pick companies that they love. And I love the company I work for. Now, that doesn't mean that if somebody walked to me and offered me financial freedom, then I wouldn't take it. Um, I, but I do. I'm very, very proud of the company that I work for and how they have shown up this year. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who, who um, I coach anybody who uh, was going through a difficult time due to COVID and needed to find a new job. So I put on, on my LinkedIn network and people are setting up time with me. So I've done a lot of coaching of people of, who are looking for. And one of the things that I talk to them about is pay attention to how companies behave this year. Because in the same way you talk about human character being something learn when aren't paying attention or when it's a power drive. Like people show you who they are in their struggles and in their challenges and how they show up in that moment. The same thing is true for companies. Companies are showing us who they are right now. And I do think it's important for us to pay attention and make sure that we're working for a company that we agree with how they stood up in this moment of COVID and of racial inequity. Are you proud of how your company responded? Because if you're not, that's something for you to think about as you start reflecting on what's next for you. I'm not saying that a company does something that you don't like and then you're like, fine, I'm out of here. That's, that's not my message. You have to balance it out against everything. But if 
if you start looking at your company and you're like, this is no longer a great fit for me and my values, and I don't like how they stand up um, and show their values, then when the time is right and you're able to find another opportunity, it may be the right time to take it. Um, and that's how I'm constantly looking at it. So I am super proud of the company that I work for. I, the reason I don't name them is not because I'm not proud of them. It's just a matter of me that it doesn't across, come across that I'm, I'm representing them in sessions like this. And um, I, am, I am so proud of how my company has showed up. But I also am always you know, paying attention to how companies that I do business with are also showing up in this time. You know, people, we forget that we have the ability with our dirt to tell companies how we feel about things. And I'm not suggesting boycotting or any of that, but I pay attention to how companies respond. I pay attention to how companies treat their employees. And I try to show support to organizations that I feel are standing up and treating people in the right way. And um, that's how I do it. I vote with my dollars and I, you know, I'll go out of my way to spend money with somebody who I think stood up in the right way and, um, uh, you know, really aligned to their own values. Again, not necessarily advocating for boycotts or, or anything like that, but I think we as individuals have the ability to make that choice with how we spend our money and that we should. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to public speaking specifically, is that something that you've always been good at or is that something you had to get better at over time? So one, I, I don't know that I'll ever say that I'm good at it. I think I have a style that works. Um, so my story around public speaking, I was class president of my engineering class at U of M. And so at graduation, I had the privilege or terrifying experience, depending on your viewpoint, of speaking at my graduation of 10,000 people. And um, that was nerve wracking. And I was like, oh, this is, you know, it's an honor and it's super nerve, nerve wracking, right? And, but I did it. And then I started my first job here in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, working for some automotive supplier. And at that time, I knew I needed to get better at public speaking. And so I joined a group called Toastmasters, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. And I did Toastmasters for several years because I'm a believer that the way you get better at something is by doing it over and over again. You can learn techniques. You can learn how to, to turn a phrase, how to buy a moment. But unless you practice those, they're never going to become part of, of your tool. And so I did that for several years. In about 2004, I started doing um, speaking. So I started doing workshops um, for 1,500 people. And I just, I, I mean, basically, I'm comfortable speaking up in front of a room. I'm comfortable speaking, facilitating. That's my job. I do a lot of facilitation now. And it's just, I've done hundreds and hundreds and probably thousands of hours of that. And so I'm comfortable in that setting. That doesn't mean I never get nervous when I'm about to speak in front of people, right? Like sometimes I'm doing something that's a little bit unusual. And so I'm a little nervous. Um, but 90% of the time, what I'm doing is something I've done before. And it's just something that now feels like I can do it. I don't have to prepare the public speaking part. I have to prepare the facilitation activities. So um, if you can imagine as an instructor, I taught three, four, five classes a year. 
And I was up in front of a group of 20 to 30 to 50, depending on the class, um, students. And you just get really comfortable being in front of people and talking in front of people because you have to do it over and over again. Now, I think the part that you kind of play with as you're, as you're doing it over and over again is what's my natural style when I go up in that environment. And I um, did an assessment that's called We Fascinate the World, I think it's called, um, Dolly Hogshead. And, you know, my style, um, how I show up or how other people perceive me is one of power just because of the way that I have presence. Um, that everyone has different styles they speak, and there is no right or wrong. It's about understanding what yours and leaning into it, and then learning the techniques that are going to make you more effective. So, I don't say um probably as much as I used to. Postmasters definitely helps with that. I do have other crutch words that I have picked up. <laughs> so, is one of my crutch words. Now, you're going to tell how, because I've pointed it out, you're going to notice how many times I say the word so. And we all have, and and is another crutch word that I use. So I think we all pick up these different ways of coping with things. Um, and we have to make sure that we're just continuously trying to practice, learn the new skills, figure out how we're connecting with people. At the end of the day, public speaking is about showing up authentically uh, with yourself, with all of yourself and with confidence because that's what people see and react to is the confidence with which you are speaking. When it comes to public speaking and your, your presentations that you do, do you ever get nervous before them? And if so, how do you deal with your nerves? Um, so occasionally, you know, in my career, I've had the chance to do something for the first time. So the first time talking to uh, what we call a too deep leader at the company. So somebody very senior that could be like a CEO at, at most other companies. And, you know, going in and knowing that you're going to be at that table and you're going to be speaking and you're like, oh, what do I say? How's this going to work? What do I do? And making sure that you're really prepared. So one of the, th my, I lean on preparation. So I'm a notebook. I have a notebook that I take everywhere and I draw a line down the middle of the page. And these are the things that I want to make sure I mention. Because a lot of times we don't have slides that we might be presenting. We may just be talking or we may have slides. And so just making sure I'm very clear on what I'm gonna say, that's one of the ways I deal with a, a situation that I'm nervous about. The other is I make sure I set my day up for success. So I, and this is something I tell all my clients as well, is you need to get enough exercise. If you have a sense of nerves or a sense of stress, you gotta go out and take a run, take a brisk walk, do jumping jacks, do something earlier in the day because it'll change the chemistry of your body. It's gonna help your body eliminate all of that negative energy, which shows up in cortisol and other chemicals that are running in your bloodstream. Exercise and working out is gonna help get those out. And instead you're gonna get all the positive, good chemicals. And it's, it, it's, gonna, it's gonna reflect in how you show up in that meeting. And so if it's something I'm really, really nervous about, and I'll give you an example, like interviews, right? Interviews, no matter how many times I've done them, I'm always nervous before an interview because of the stakes of what could happen, right? And so the day of an interview, I pretty much always go for a run that morning because I want to make sure that I'm taking care of any of my negative energy and I'm creating positive energy. Um, and that's what other people see when they're, when they're 
seeing me. They see positive energy and they see confidence and any of that negative energy that has been stored in my body is gone. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, so those are my two exercise. Sorry. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good, that's a, those are good points. I'm, I'm a big, I'm a firm believer in, in some sort of physical activity to dissipate the nervous energy as well. And yet you're absolutely right about Toastmasters. It's, it provides an excellent forum to practice public speaking. And if you do say, um, a lot, they'll, they'll, they'll get that out of you pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been really interesting learning more about you, Jennifer. Uh, how can people get in touch with you? So I am on Facebook under uh, Career Success Designer. So you can find me on Facebook. You can also find me on LinkedIn under my name. Um, and definitely would love to connect with any of your folks out there. Happy um, to share a little bit about what I do with them if they need any help around advancing their careers or learning more about being corporate innovators. That's kind of my passion. Wonderful. Well, everyone, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson, founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering of the platform is a public speaking course, and it's called Teach the Geek to Speak. You can learn more about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that is teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. That was, uh, that was so much fun.